This episode of the Supply Chain Brain podcast is supported by Burris Logistics, a leading provider of end-to-end supply chain services. Be sure and stick around after the discussion for a look at the company and what it offers to customers. But now, on to the podcast. In the age of e-commerce, direct-to-consumer fulfillment is essential. Easier said than done, though. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Often, direct-to-consumer fulfillment is the only way that manufacturers and retailers can hope to meet the modern-day consumer's need for speed. The model holds benefits for the seller as well, since it usually results in less inventory sitting idle in multiple warehouses. But making DTC work is another matter entirely. On this episode, we'll learn how it's done with the help of two experts from Burris Logistics, Vice President of Business Development, Nick Falk, and Account Manager, Megan Caruso. We'll discuss the complications that arise from satisfying the relentless needs of e-commerce shoppers today, including how traditional warehouses need to be modified to make that possible, and how logistics providers are coping with challenges such as packaging, availability of coolant to support the cold chain, and the complexities of the final mile carrier network. So here... Is my conversation with Nick Falk and Megan Caruso. Megan Caruso, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Happy to be here. And Nick Falk, welcome as well. Thanks, Bob. Pleasure to be on the show. Megan, what does it take these days to make DTC, direct-to-consumer fulfillment, work? Well, Bob, first off, it really comes down to having a good product at the core of it. You want to make sure you have something that customers are going to come back for. Typically, in this space, there are a lot of incentives to try a first order, heavy discounts on order number one and number two. But if you can get a customer back for a second, third purchase and beyond you're really in a good spot financially to be able to bring customers on. The subscription model is really effective in achieving this because, frankly, it's harder to influence a customer to go in and schedule another order versus that being the default from the start. And Mm -hmm. you also want to make sure that you have an appropriate dollar amount for your average basket size. So it's all going to come down to your cost of goods as well as your volume. But a company really needs to make sure that its basket size can absorb the cost of manufacturing the product, the packaging that they're choosing to deliver that product, dry ice or gel pack or other coolant costs if you're talking about temperature control, and the cost of a FedEx or UPS or other final mile carrier charge, and in some cases, the transportation, storage, and fulfillment costs from a 3PL, all of that gets lumped in and adds up very quickly. So you want to make sure that the basket size that's going to the end user is going to be big enough to cover all of those and leave room for profit at the end of it. Yeah. Nick, you have a perspective on that, especially with regard to just the overall customer experience in this area? Yes, I think it's a great question. I think for a a company, it's really understanding the why or the win behind a DTC product. 
for the end consumer. I think that's imperative. You know, creating a routine and a subscription model like Megan talked about is important, but how do you keep that fresh? We have customers who add seasonal items or a different assortment really to build excitement within their customer base. I'm a person, I'm a coffee nut, and we have a subscription-based coffee service. And every time I get something new in the mail, it's the first thing that I open. And so you continue to drive that excitement is important. I think the second piece is, is the value proposition within that. Back when we were at the peak of the spring COVID event, you could sell toilet paper and other staples online and make a really good living off that. But now that the options have really grown and we've got everything from click and collect to other means to get your staples, most people are less apt to try a DTC home delivery purchase for staples or a commodity type item. So really understanding what's the win for the customer, I think is important and how you clearly define that within your target demographics is where I see a lot of differentiation of success between customers. As if all that weren't enough, we are in the middle of a pandemic. Megan, can you speak to the impact of that plus any other complexities and challenges that need to be addressed in DTC? Sure. There's three things that really stand out to me when you talk about challenges. The first being packaging. So packaging is a major focus of the customers we work with. There's a lot of options out there ranging from recycled cardboard boxes, dissolvable cornstarch liners, fully pre-made boxes that arrive to us already erected, styrofoam coolers. There's really a ton of options. But we're finding that the end consumer typically wants something that's going to be fully recyclable. And that's especially important if it's a subscription business, which many of our customers are. A customer might be receiving orders on a weekly basis or monthly basis. So if you're getting boxes every week or every month to your door and you find that you're feeling excessively wasteful, you're probably not feeling really good about that purchase. But if something is fully curbside recyclable and you can just throw it in your recycle bin, that's a good thing that our customers can kind of tout to their end users as a benefit of getting their product. Next, which does tie in a bit to the COVID situation, is the coolant. And again, everything that we deal with is temperature controlled. It's mostly frozen and a little bit of refrigerated. So we see two options really for coolant. One is frozen gel packs of various sizes or blocks or pellets of dry ice. So the majority of our customers do use dry ice, but this has been severely impacted through the COVID-19 pandemic due to several factors. But essentially the cost of dry ice has skyrocketed because the demand is up and the ability to create it is down. There's been a big shortage given the fact that a lot of the CO2 that gets compressed into dry ice blocks comes from ethanol byproducts, which essentially comes from refineries and places that manufacture fuel. And with a lot less airplanes in the air and a lot less cars on the road in the beginning of the pandemic, we really couldn't get that CO2 or our suppliers couldn't get that CO2 to compress into the dry ice that we needed. So there's a lot of different factors, but essentially dry ice right now is basically worth its weight in gold, which has made it a little difficult just in terms of being able to know exactly that we're going to have a continuous flow of dry ice. But we've made it work so far, and we've told a lot of our customers that if it makes sense to basically keep a pallet of gel packs on hand to use as a backup plan, that way we aren't disturbing the flow of their oh. orders and we can get them out the door. Yeah. And then the last piece of the challenges, which also relates to the pandemic a bit, would be the final mile carrier network. You've really got a lot of options. You've got a couple of big nationwide carriers, and then you've also got local carriers. But regardless of who you're using, the last several months, there's been a huge strain on the network due to the rise in direct-to-consumer fulfillment demand 
and just everyone kind of being overloaded. So we've experienced a lot more delays in packages getting to their end destination, perhaps going to the wrong sorting hub. It hasn't been every week for certain, but we've seen a rise in delays across pretty much every carrier that we've worked with. So that's something else to think about. We're hoping that that'll calm down a bit, but going into the Mm -hmm. holiday season now, I don't know that that's the case. By the way, help me to understand better the whole concept of direct to consumer. Direct from where? Direct from a manufacturer, direct from a retailer facility, direct from a brick and mortar store, or all of the above? Where's the stuff actually coming from? I think the answer, Bob, is, is yes, it's coming from everywhere. So as, as you look at it, and one of the ways that companies, they're either retailers, your traditional brick and, re- and mortar retailers, your online only retailers, as well as your CPGs are looking at it, is the answer is yes. Customers want to be served how they want to be served, and they're going to be served through a number of different offerings. We've seen a lot of companies be very successful with the click and collect model. It seems to be one that's, that's growing exponentially. If you look at the earning results of a lot of the brick and mortar retailers, they've had massive growth in that and a lot of success in those places. And the ones that are highly differentiating are the ones that are being successful with the click and collect. If you dig a little bit deeper into that, one of the intricacies of that and a couple of the places with a couple of the retailers that we've been working with where they've seen success and one that a national retailer that's seen a lot of success is how do you manage your inventory across all of those different modalities, if you will, and how do you make sure that you can best serve that customer in the way that that customer wants to be served? We're in such a I want it and I want it now environment, and some of that's been necessitated by Amazon and some of it's been necessitated by the pandemic. But as you look at that, people have to be willing to be served in the ways that the customer wants to be served. You still have a big portion of the country that wants to go direct to the doorstep. And that's one of the ways that we've seen a lot of success in the subscription-based models, as well as some of the other commodities that we're delivering for CPG companies. A lot of the other ones, you look at it and say, well, being an old retail person, I say, how do I increase my basket size and my frequency with that customer? And the answer for a lot of them has been click and collect. A little bit of the problem with that or the, the struggle that you may see they're kind of twofold. One is, how can I have an open inventory, meaning that I can have one inventory pool that I can service customers across a broad segment of different styles, whether that's click and collect, whether that's a brick and mortar, whether that's delivering to the consumer at their home. I want to be able to service that out of one inventory pool. And there was actually a lot of that mentioned in some of the target earnings over the last couple of quarters. The second piece of that, though, is how do I maintain basket size that's big enough with that particular customer to make that transaction worthwhile? So Megan hit on it earlier, going directly to the door of a consumer takes a lot of resources, whether that's the final mile carrier, whether that's packaging, et cetera, et cetera. And so the basket size becomes important there, both on the direct-to-consumer at the door, as well as direct-to-consumer at the car door where you have to get enough basket size to make it worthwhile to pick that off the store shelf or back room and then stage that and then bring that out and eat that labor up. And so retailers are kind of struggling with, I want to drive my retail per square foot as well as my total basket size. And I think that they're finding a lot of success in those. But as you ask, what does direct-to-consumer mean? Direct-to-consumer means that the consumer gets it however they choose to get it and the retailer and the, the partner offer all those modes to them. 
Well, it's, it's all very well to say that give the consumer exactly what they want, but this stuff costs money and these businesses still have to make a profit. So how do you control costs at the same time you're giving the customer what they want? Sure. I think from a 3PL standpoint, we look to control as many of those cost levers as we can. We are looking at it from a standpoint of saying that everything rolls up together. And one of the things that I would look at from a, a direct-to-consumer standpoint is how can I partner with folks who are really good in the spaces that they're in and who can almost bring a consultancy type of approach to our solution design and to our business development. And what I mean by that is that every input has a cost associated with it. And how do I make sure that I'm getting the best cost? And as we look at it, I'm measuring my inbound freight and what that impact is. I'm measuring my processing, the most efficient packaging technology that's out there, partnering with the right people for the final mile delivery, and then also making sure that waste is limited as well as one of the kind of unseen costs of that is loss of sale. So a loss of sale doesn't necessarily just mean the associated profit with one particular transaction. It's also the associated profit with loss with every other transaction coming down the pipe and the reputational loss that goes with that and the trickle-down effect for that. So as I look at that, we want to be able to find partners who are going to give high-quality service. They're going to limit the number of reputation issues you have, either through missed picks or the inability to service the guest and the customer the way that you might like to as well as somebody who's controlling a lot of my costs on other transactional things, leveraging scale in order to be able to drive down transportation costs or leveraging purchasing abilities to drive down some of those as well. In addition to that, how are they investing in technology within the four walls of a distribution center in order to drive down that cost for box as well? Megan, you laid out very succinctly some of the big challenges involved in direct-to-consumer, but I imagine that they differ sharply depending on what type of area you're serving, whether it's urban, suburban, or rural. Can you speak to some of the unique challenges that deliverers and retailers face in that regard? Sure, Bob. So what we really see in our network in terms of geography is that if you want to do this in a cost-effective way and really reach the whole U.S., you're going to need to have products coming from ideally at least East Coast and West Coast locations. But if, if you can afford to have a third inventory pile in the middle of the country, that's a really big, helpful addition to your network to be able to cover the whole U.S., the whole continental U.S., essentially, in two-day ground service really having that coverage is important because if you can get away from doing any sort of express or overnight service, that's going to save you a ton of money on the final mile costs. And the other piece of it, talking about urban versus suburban areas and rural areas, that's kind of where the local carrier comes into play. So there's obviously the two main national carriers that everyone's familiar with, but then you've also got these other more local final mile carriers, whether it's East Coast-based or Mid-Atlantic or just New York market or just kind of the Texas and surrounding areas. And what they are able to do is offer, in some cases, better pricing because they're essentially able to cherry-pick the high-population zip codes and just focus on those. So it all comes down to saving costs to our end customers. But there is a lot of options out there for the final mile piece of it, whether it's going to New York City or somewhere out in rural Pennsylvania. Nick, you know it's more than a question of just taking an existing fulfillment network that operated under traditional rules and then just suddenly turning it into a DTC model. So how 
Must manufacturers and retailers revamp their supply chains to make direct-to-consumer delivery possible? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I look at it from a couple of different angles. I think for manufacturers, the first thing is pack sizes. So as you look at it, we hear a lot from manufacturers who simply can't meet existing demand. And if I'm looking at that from their perspective, I'm saying, how do I ship the most product to the most customers in order to make things happen? And the pack size is different if that's going to a club setting, such as a BJ's Wholesale or a Costco or a Sam's Club. It's also different if it's going to one of the local big box retailers or or the mom and pop type, type stores, and even different if you're going direct to consumer. So really trying to galvanize around what is it that I want to do and making sure that I'm rationalizing my pack sizes. I think second to that is rationalizing SKUs. So I think one of the latent outcomes of the COVID scenario and really the lack of labor associated with current environment is that we're going to see SKU rationalization. So what are the SKUs that I want to sell? How do I get kind of that Pareto effect and and really understand how much are these products really driving sales and driving value for my organizations and which ones should I get rid of in order to really focus on what I'm good at? The last piece is what inventory models and fulfillment models do I want to use, right? So we have partners who are brick and mortar retailers who have not yet figured out how to leverage some of their own backroom capabilities or their time and capital is better served being deployed in different ways. And so that's a model you can use to use a third-party provider in order to do that, especially beneficial when you look at some of the returns and some of the additional processing that goes into place. Other models include using their existing fulfillment networks. We've all seen some of the other things that have changed in terms of using backroom space, as well as potentially dark stores that have come into play for these as well. So when I look at it, what do they have to do in order to make this delivery possible? I think it's understanding what their route is, what their best process is in order to get there, and then building out plans across that. From a peer, how do I get into this market? How can I start being a provider of that? I'd say knowledge is king. There are a lot of organizations right now and a lot of the entrepreneurs that we deal with incredibly, incredibly gifted when it comes to finding what their message should be, finding a product. I don't think that there'll ever be a replacement for a great product and finding that passion behind it. And I think that as you transition that into how do I get my product in the hands of the consumers, it's really finding expertise in order to be able to do that. Know what you know, really drive what you can drive, but then find high quality partners in order to be able to do that. And partners who are well capitalized, I think the worst thing that can happen and uh, we did a story for another day, maybe, where we had a CPG provider who asked us to be able to provide a direct-to-consumer for them because even some of the best providers are now limited on resources and headcount in order to be able to process orders. I've read an article, in fact, one of your supply chain brain articles recently about how through this pandemic, there's been one really marked increase in the number of folks employed within our industry. And that's really helped from the truck drivers to the warehouse staff to those on the front lines have really helped lead us through this pandemic. But that's an incredible resource that not everybody has access to. So finding the highest quality employers and and finding employers of choice to partner with is also imperative.
Nick, tell me a little bit about Burris Logistics, the history of the company and sort of what its market niche is and how it got started and stuff like that. Burris Logistics has been around since 1925. So we've got a little bit of background here in what we've been doing. We started out originally as a company hauling produce from the lower Delmarva Peninsula to Philadelphia and then finding our way back with bread for Acme through their retail store. First Logistics now has grown into a conglomerate really focused on four business units, really that we feel are ones that have interdependencies and help us grow and are kind of counter-cyclical. So as we look at it, we've got four business units. One is our custom retail group, focusing on providing retailers and other end users. Our public refrigerated warehousing group focused on manufacturers and storage of product before it goes to distribution. We have Honor Foods, which is a value-added redistributor in the Northeast. And then we have Trinity Logistics, a wholly-owned freight subsidiary in 3PL, one of the 15th largest in the nation. So as we combine those together, leveraging our resources across 15 different physical distribution centers, largely on the East Coast, our niche is really large and it's quite diverse. How then is Burris Logistics making direct-to-consumer work, especially in these difficult times? Uh, just how are you adjusting to the needs of the moment? Really what it comes down to is communication with our customers. We have to be agile, we have to be transparent, and we always have to be improving. So some things that a year ago were a great bonus to have in our portfolio of offerings are things that are now just expected of a provider like us. That's how quickly things are changing. And we also have to be able to flex up. We proved that we could do this during the pandemic, and we continue to prove that. We had customers experiencing double and triple-digit growth very unexpectedly, and we were able to fairly seamlessly cover that massive increase. We're constantly adding resources on our tech side and upgrading our operational capacities to allow our customers to scale and we're seeing that we're doing a good job for them in the fact that we have several customers now expanding into multiple buildings within our network to help grow their business. Do you have a sense of what the future might hold in terms of any additional services or emphases that you're going to need to be addressing in the year or two to come with regard to what your customers are saying they might need in the future? Any ideas there? As we listen to that, our customers are really focused on how can I gain market share in our existing environment? And then how can I expand service offerings and expand geography? With the cost of capital being so low and staying low for the foreseeable future, a lot of customers are focused on growth and hyper-focused on growth. So as we look at our existing customer base, our customer base is really asking for us to secure additional capacity and grow with them or grow ahead of them as we expand our geographies. And so we're focused on creating additional opportunities to serve the existing customer base that we have. In addition to that, we're also hyper-focused on growing where it's smart to grow. We added Trinity Logistics to our existing freight transportation group. We feel that that's a big differentiator for us as we can control the supply chain really end-to-end. As I look at us, we have all the tools necessary with the exception of really a retail store. So we have all the components of the supply chain and we have the ability to control that and control costs and drive a great value for the customer already. And so we are being mindful of how we are expanding into those areas where we can continue to drive growth and value for our existing customers while branching out. And I think the direct-to-consumer has been a great story in that as we've grown from the Northeast to the Southeast to the Midwest 
and have plans to continue to grow that sales offering. Direct-to-consumer is such a huge challenge and yet so necessary in this time of e-commerce and rising customer demands for service from retailers and logistics providers such as yourself. Megan Caruso, I want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about these issues along with Burris Logistics itself. Thank you, Megan. You're welcome, Bob. Thanks for having me. Nick Falk, thank you so much for being with us as well. Thank you. Definitely appreciate your time. That was my conversation with Nick Falk and Megan Caruso of Burris Logistics, talking about the challenges of direct-to-consumer fulfillment. Our thanks to Burris Logistics for sponsoring this episode. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time. <laughs>